This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 183. And the quote of the day is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, The present moment is the only moment available to us, and it's the door to all other moments. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're doing well. If this is your first time listening, thanks so much. You can get all 180-plus interviews at drummersresource.com. Also, for all you fathers out there here in the U.S., I hope you had a great Father's Day yesterday. hope you got to spend some quality time doing whatever it is you wanted to do. Uh, Hey, if you're around this Tuesday... Be sure to go check out my How to Get Bigger and Better Gigs webinar. I'll teach you how to master the secret weapons for getting the gigs that you want. You'll learn who gets hired and why, how to create relationships with artists you want to play with, proven ways to become a first call player, and how to get, and most importantly, keep that gig. You can check it out at drummersresource.com forward slash gigs, G-I-G-S. Now, let's get into this interview. This is one that I've been trying to line up for a while. I feel like I say that a lot because it happens a lot. Sometimes it takes six months, a year, a year and a half to get people on the podcast. And this is Eric Harlan, and he and I have been exchanging emails for a long time now. So finally got him on the podcast. Really, really insightful. He is such an amazing dude. Great player, as you know, uh, but just some really insightful things that we talk about in this podcast and uh, really excited that that I got Eric and it was definitely well worth the wait to get him on. So I hope you enjoy it and let's get into it with my man, Eric Harlan. Eric, what's going on, my man? Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you, Nick. How's everything going? Everything's going well, man. Everything's going well. It's funny. We were just talking off air. It's it's interesting to talk to all these people who moved to my home state of Pennsylvania and all these. And, you know, I moved out of it. And now I talk to all these people and they're like, oh, yeah, I moved back to Pennsylvania. But I understand why, because of the, the peace and the, the quiet and the tranquility. Yeah, it's nice. It's it's green. It's not like gray <laughs> <laughs> and concrete. Um, you know, not that I have any um anything against that. Um I, I believe when you're you travel a lot as an artist, uh, you know, on any level and in any genre, it's nice to be somewhere where you can just, you know, your thoughts can just kind of be open. Mm-hmm. And um and your imagination can come through and you know you feel you know I feel inspired a lot and I, I believe that comes from just being around a more t- uh, tranquil environment because uh, I also get inspiration from being in the city sure as well but it's something about being out here it's, it's more like a recharge uh, mm-hmm. I can regather and and also you know I, I know me for myself I can't speak for everybody else but when I'm in the city you know, I can't help but always go out and party. You know, yeah. if something's going on, like I'm just, it's like a gravitational pool that just somehow I know is happening and then I'm there. Whereas at home, it's nice because, you know, I'm going to still have a good time and party at home, but it's it's a little bit more relaxed, low key. I get to bed and get a, you know, a good night's sleep, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So. <laughs> 
It's funny because when I moved to the city, you know, like my wife and I, we go out all the time because that's what you do in the city. So exactly. I, my parents are always like, man, you go out to eat a lot, don't you? And I'm like, I, I never used to, you know, like I did once in a while. But like now I feel like I, every night there's something to do or somebody calling you to go out. It's just not like that in the burbs, which there's there's pros and cons to both. Exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, we still go out a lot. And I believe that's because we don't. Um, we don't like to cook so mm-hmm. much um, because you start to realize, you know, the more you cook, the more you have to clean the kitchen. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you'd be like, hey, you know what? Let's not mess up the kitchen today. Let's just go out to eat. I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so speak. All right, so you live in Pennsylvania now, but let's let's get a little bit of your backstory just to build some context for the listeners. So so where are you originally from? And let's talk a little bit about your backstory about how you got into playing. Uh, I'm originally from Houston, Texas. Uh, I guess backstory. Um, I started playing drums when I was about five years old. Um, come from a, a musically inclined family. Um, my mom um, is a um, pianist and organist and a choir director. Uh, so, you know, I grew up playing music in church along with her, um, as well as, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, choir rehearsal. I mean, when I was eight years old, I was playing for a gospel music melody hour. Hmm. Uh, it was like a TV, TV station called Channel 39 in Houston, Texas. So, you know, that was kind of like my first start at doing anything outside of just practicing in my house. Right. <laughs> and trying to figure it out. And uh, but also on the other, you know, like my mom is what I call like the the artsy side of the family was my dad is like the analytical side, but he was also an avid listener to music. So I was getting music from, from both sides. So he wasn't, he wasn't a musician. No, 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 no. He wasn't a musician at all. He was actually a telephone engineer. So he worked for the telephone company and um, his whole thing was about the intricacies of the wires and, you know, what made electronic, you know, electrical things work. And I love watching him do that, you know, and because um, I feel like I got uh, a bit of both of them, you know, the way mm-hmm. I approach her. Like my mom is very passionate and all about the spirit and how she feels in the moment. And um, and so I have that aspect, but I also have, you know, a little bit of my dad where I, I like to see how things work and take them apart and put them back together as well. Right, right. So how did you land the gig playing on that TV show at eight? Did your mom have anything to do with that or? Yeah, my mom and um, she had a friend who was a, uh, I used to, I knew her as Sister Daniels. Uh, and Sister Daniels, um, you know, wanted me to play for her choir. And um, she had this choir that I was associated with. And, and so I used to go and rehearse with them when I was, you know, seven or eight years old. And, you know, Sister Daniels became the director of this gospel music uh, melody hour. That was on Channel 39. And so, you know, she talked to my mom and, you know, they wanted to see if I was going to be able to, for one, handle the hours because it, it always started at midnight. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, for an eight-year-old to be up at midnight, you know, and it was only for one hour. So it was from midnight to one o'clock. And I think it was right. like every Wednesday or something like that. And um, Wow. So it was that one night a week. You know, it was cool. My mom, you know, she was very open about it because, you know, choir rehearsals would run late sometime anyway. Mm-hmm. And it was perfect. And um, I got a chance to play with um, a lot of the known gospel 
groups during that time, like the William brothers and uh, the Clark sisters, you know, these were like all the groups, they would come through town to do some. So were you like the house, the house drummer for the show? Yeah, I was the house drummer for the show. Okay. Kind of like the, the Tonight Show or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Except, you know, it wasn't on that level at all. But right, yeah. right, right. I see what you're saying, though. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the next morning, you're like, ease off, teach. I was out gigging last night till 1 a.m. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely be tired. And it was funny because my mom could sleep in. And I would wake up like, oh, man. So, you know, I would have to get up at least at 6 or 6.30 to, to go to school. Right. And, uh, and so I, how how long mm-hmm. did you do that for? Uh, not too long, maybe a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the the show lasted too long. So. so was it like a was it a sight reading gig? Was it different stuff every week? Was it? I mean, I'm guessing that you probably learned a lot and and had exponential growth during that period. I would imagine. Yeah, no, I I think the groups would because you know they would send one tune, and I didn't play with everybody. You know, some mm-hmm. groups traveled with their own band. So it was very sporadically, like it was only when the actual group, you know, needed me, like they needed a house drummer to play with them. Because uh, I believe some groups, you know, they just brought like their own track because they wanted it to sound a certain way. So, you know, they would send the music beforehand so that I could check it out. My mom would go over it with me. And and that was it. That's how I learned it, you know, leading up to the show. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it's interesting to me the the difference of people who start playing when they're you know three four five years old and they're like oh yeah i was gigging by the time i was eight nine ten years old versus like the cats that are like oh i didn't start playing drums until you know i was 16 or 17 like i think i think james gadson started playing drums when he was like 21 oh man or something like something crazy i I interviewed him i should probably know this but it was i think he started when he was like 18 21 something like that and like in a year and a half later he was like a top call motown guy hey you know you know i mean it's all about environment you know that's the way it 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 seems to work um if you got something to say and um and you know it's it's an open market at that time then people would just swoop you up. Uh, I felt like the same thing happened for me in New York because when I moved to New York, I expected it to be just like a, a madhouse of drummers. Mm-hmm. Like, How old I were just, you when you moved to the city? Uh, 16. I was 16 when I came to New York. Wow. And uh, By yourself or with family? By myself. Yeah, because that's where I graduated out of school early. And so when I got to, to college. You? I know, man. It's, it's one of those things you don't really brag about. You know, <laughs> Man. Yeah, I graduated. I think it's because I went to I went to Catholic school my first uh, first and second grade, mm-hmm. and so um, I think I I was I got into I skipped third grade and went directly to fourth grade or some something like that up in there. Um, I basically when I started like regular school, I was already a, a grade ahead, and, I but I was still younger than everyone else but i had already been learning on that level so it just kind of kept going and kept going so you know i always felt i was always the youngest in my class basically Mm -hmm. you know after you know it felt like i should have been you know uh graduated a year later you know just based on all my friends they were just always older than me right i was um, always i was always the shortest in my class i always felt like i should be taller but it just just didn't happen (laughs) Man, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen. I have a, a really good friend of mine, and uh, he's super tall, but his son, 
you know, who's now 16, it's, I mean, I swear it's still like the same height as Kevin Hart or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> At least I'm, I am taller than Kevin Hart. I think I, I think I got him by like an inch. He's short. He's like 5'5", five five, isn't he? I don't even know if he's that tall. I think he's, he's like tall. five two, man. That's a short dude. Uh, you know, but that's what makes him so funny. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, you gotta laugh at it, you know. I uh, I agree, man. I I try to laugh at it myself. It it helps me because then nobody asks me to like get this thing over here and I can walk in places and not hit my head and you know, man, I don't have to hey. worry about it. Hey well, so, man, you sound you sound six one. Thanks. You know? thanks. <laughs> I have a really tall voice. So <laughs> Uh, all right, so you're 16, you moved to New York, and you don't know what to expect. No, I mean, yeah, I just, you know, I thought it was just going to be swimming with drummers just from everywhere. And um, it, to my surprise, it wasn't, because I believe, you know, all the pioneers, were they were out gigging or they had already moved out of town. And um, it was really nobody in town. Um, there was like a handful of drummers uh, at the school, um, and I think, you know, everyone, like the main drummers who were kind of on the scene at the time were Greg Hutchison, uh, Ali Jackson, and Kareem Riggins. Mm -hmm. So those were the guys that, you know, I grew up around when I first got to New York. And um, I was like, you know, I met some drums at school. Uh, there were some drums at the new school because eventually I, I met up with uh, Marcus Baylor because he went to the new school. But that was years later. Uh, before then, it, it just really wasn't in a lot of drummers. Really? Uh, no, I mean, not like, you know, in my, um, you know, I guess my age or similar, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Blakey was around, uh, but, you know, he wasn't always playing in town. He was traveling or sure. doing something else. Jack, Jack DeJanette just wasn't around. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fortunate to catch, catch like one of the last uh, Tony Williams master classes, wow. but he wasn't even in town. Uh, he did this one master class, and I think uh, that was like a year before he passed. And it was funny. I remember he came out and he did this master class, and he didn't say anything. Um, and I think he might have been pissed because it was only maybe like 15 people in the audience or something like that. And uh, yeah, I think he just felt like really. And so he came out, and you know, he did. You know, he played the most amazing stuff for like an hour and a half, right? And then left. No and questions, nothing. No questions, nothing. <laughs> did his thing, you know. Yeah, you know, do you understand? Exactly. But you didn't doubt it, you know. I sat right by the drums with my jaw to the floor. And uh, and I was like, God damn. And then he just left. And he was like, yeah. That's, wow. That's, that's all you can do after that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's amazing, though, that you caught it, you know. Oh, man. It was, Yeah. You know, I wish I could have recorded it, but it was kind of like pre everything. You would have had to have one of those like tape recorders in your pocket, and right. You know, you just it was too bulky. You couldn't get away with it. And, <laughs> and, you know, I was like, oh man, too much reverence. You know, if right. I got caught and got right. kicked out, I'd have been sad. You know? <laughs> You'd have the story to tell now, though. So, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, question about uh, I want to backtrack a little bit about when you moved to New York. Uh, uh -huh. At at what point were you like, all right? I'm going to play drums for a career. I'm doing this. I don't want to do anything else. Or did you have other things that you wanted to do and maybe they didn't pan out or maybe, you know, you were, you were torn between those two. And then the decision to move to New York, I'm guessing was based on jazz, right? You know, I'd be honest, man. I, I had no clue. And 
I, I didn't decide anything to be, you know, to just be clear. Um, what happened was I was still in high school and when Marcellus came to my high school to do a master class and I would just, you know, I was a senior at the time and I was, so I was playing in the, you know, the first, you know, you know, number one jazz, not number one, but you know, first jazz. I guess you, right. You yeah. know, <laughs> and so, um, uh, so being in, in first jazz band or first jazz combo, you, you know, we got a chance to play with whoever the, the cl- uh, clinician that would come and do clinics at the school. And so, um, so that was my opportunity to play with Wynton. And, you know, he heard me, he was like, oh man, you know, you sound great and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. I don't know. Um, he's like, no, man, you know, you really, you know, come hang with me for the day. And so he, you know, I hung with him for the day because he did a show in Houston that night. And that was the first time I got a chance to meet Herlin Riley. And, um, you know, it was mind blowing and, you know, Mm -hmm. it took me to the dressing room and Herlin, you know, as soon as he saw me and went and was like saying like, yeah, man, this cat, man, he can play. Herlin pulls out a a phone book and some brushes and was like, all right, he said, you can play, show me something. (laughs) I was like, God damn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, nice to meet you too. <laughs> right. But um, so, you know, that, you know, Wynton was like, you know what, man, you should really come to New York. And, and that was how it all happened. He wrote a letter of recommendation for me to go and audition for Manhattan School of Music. And, and so I ended up, because of his recommendation and my audition, I ended up getting a full scholarship to go to Manhattan. And uh, and that's how I ended up in New York. Um, I actually wanted to go to North Texas because I really loved the um, the one o'clock lab band. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, I had I had Ed on the on the podcast, man. Just man, so, just an amazing well, guy. You know what was funny is that I found out a story about because I auditioned for the one o'clock lab band. I auditioned for not for one o'clock, but for to get into North Texas, and I didn't get in. And um, really, I was, man, I was man, I was so disappointed because that was exactly what I wanted to do. And I didn't find out why until like two years ago, like there was a, a student that had been working with Ed and um, he said, man, he said, do you, did you ever find out the reason why you didn't get into North Texas? And I was like, man, no. And I was like, you know, I still was mad at Ed for that. <laughs> you know, and I was like, you know, what, you know, I was like, whatever, man, you know, they didn't want me. He was like, he said, uh, so the, the student was like, man, just to clear the waters, they completely wanted you. And he said, Ed made the decision that you were too good to come to North Texas. He was like, you, you, he, you should have been in New York. Really? And he said, and that's why they didn't accept my, um, they didn't accept me into North Texas. Yeah. And I was like, I'd be goddamn. You know, and I was, they could have told me that when I applied. Man, you know, I was like, you know, going around with this chip on my shoulder, man. You know, but I was like, you know what? I'm in New York, and um, you know, I felt like, and that was the thing for me. Like, I felt like I had made it being in New York because, you know, I grew up watching all these different movies, and everything was all about being in New York. And it, the movies were never about, you know what to do in New York. It was just, New York was like the promised land. Like if you're right. in New York, you've made it, you know, all these recordings in New York or, or in Europe. And, and so when I first got to New York, that was, for me, that was it. I didn't think about anything else after that. I just felt like I had made it and I'm good. I'm here, you know? And so then what, what I just did, what I normally did at home, was I just practiced all the time and I just got with guys and we just played, played, played. Cause 
that's what I did in Houston. Uh, me and Chris Day grew up together. We we're actually cousins. And, uh, and what we used to do was just practice all the time. We would set up two drum sets. We practice and then, you know, we'd go to the gym and act like we was working out because we would do like these weird kind of regimens, you know, just to like challenge the body. Like it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we would do like a, a thousand or however many pushups we could do to make our arms super heavy. And then we would try to play as fast as we could, you know, with these heavy <laughs> arms and stuff. And, you know, and then we play video games because we get tired of playing the drums. And then right. we get inspired again. We're like, all right, man, we're going to play drums again. But now we're going to play left-handed, you know, and see who can play left-handed. And then we would do that for, like, five hours, you know, then eat and then go back and play video games and stuff. So, you know, that was kind of... Now it's all making sense. I get it now. Now I know why you guys are so damn good. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. It was just it was just crazy time. Like we was bored. We had nothing else to do but practice. Right. And so when I got to New York, I just kept doing the same thing. I just kept practicing. I just find guys. There was no, really no other drummers that really wanted to play. And um and so you know everybody anybody I met, I was like, man, let's just go play. And they'd be like, all right, cool. And that's what we would do. And like even though the school would close at night, we actually broke into the school to go play. <laughs> and, you know, and it was just because that was the only place to play. Like that's dedication. Oh man, you know, it was just you know, you're young and you're bored. And I was like, if you're not going to play, you know, I'm gonna get into something else. Right. And so <laughs> I say, you know, you know, it's there's uh, well, two points to this. One, and I don't know what other way to say this, so I'm just gonna say it, that white guys don't do that. Like, there's not for some reason, like there's not a bunch of white guys that get together and play drums. Oh, man, that's I don't, crazy. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a culture thing. I don't know I don't know what it is, but like I never got together even in college or anything, there was never like a bunch of guys that were like, Hey, we should all just get together and play really? together. And yeah. Like not I'm not saying that like there's never been any four white guys that have gotten in a room and played drums together. Yeah. But like it's just not it's different and I think it might be and I might be wrong about this, but it, like it may be the church culture, yeah. That sort of that sort of like is the catalyst for that because you guys are all sort of if you, like when you're playing in church, uh -huh. you guys are all sort of challenging each other at the same well, time. Then yeah. maybe it comes from the, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. Well, yeah, I don't even know how it started either. Um, it just went. You know, we were all in school together, and mm -hmm. um, well, not not at the same time, but it's you know, eventually you start to recognize who's who in a, in a community. And then you just become associated with that community of drummers. And the thing is, I mean, what else are you going to really do, you know, when you're young, when you're like 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, you're going to play video games, but ultimately what you want to do is, is practice. Right. And, uh, and I don't know, I think it's, I know for me, you know, drums is a very competitive instrument. And uh, and I think we use that that competitive energy just in a good way. Like uh, it's like, well, man, let me see what you're doing, and you know, let's let's you know, we didn't call it battling, but it was just we really challenged each other as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was the thing; it just became fun, and you know, it, it was nothing else to do really. Like it was just it was either practice, it was practicing and eating. <laughs> and then hanging out at the mall, you know, playing video games. And then it was like, I guess we would practice some more, you know. Right. It's <laughs> like, just, right. it just blows my mind. Like that, it's, I it, like, it's totally a cultural thing. And like, I'm, I'm a little upset that I didn't grow up like that. Like, oh, it was man. just, 
it's just not i don't know it just never but see i mean but you grew up with a you know with something else that we necessarily didn't grow up with um and i'm learning i'm learning about that now but it's like you know you know the business side of 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 the arts and and music and you know right even, i feel like i grew up you know just you know honing in on what i knew how to do mm-hmm but that was about it. You know, like my, you know, my mom wasn't talking to me about taxes and, you know, you know, having a bank account and you know right, saving right. your money and all this kind of stuff. Like those kind of talks, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't much money. You know, I hate to use the word the hood because everybody says the hood and I don't want to call it the hood, but you know, growing up, uh, you know, in, in a lot of black families, there just wasn't a lot of money. Right. And, and so you not all have... white people pay their taxes either. So let's be uh, clear about that. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, at least you knew about it. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. I, like, I knew it because I grew up, my family has owned a business or businesses since like 1974. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty business savvy, but. Exactly. And so, I, you know, I, you know, I feel like I had to learn about that the hard way. You know, it was, it was like all of a sudden, you, you know, you got notices, like you didn't pay your taxes and you're like this young kid, like, what's that? You know? Right, right. And you're like, oh, you know, and then you spend the whole rest of your life trying to learn about what that is and what you're supposed to be doing. I got to take this, 30% out every time? Man, <laughs> all the legal implications. And then, okay, you got to get an attorney. You got to try to trust this person. You don't know right. this person. You know, so, you know, whereas, like, I, I spent a lot of time practicing. I had to spend, the, you know, the rest of the time, you know, <laughs> you know, learning how to... Um, Learning what to do with it. I mean, the first part came naturally uh, when I was at school at MSM. Um, I was fortunate because my combo teacher at the time, Rodney Jones, he just so happened to be the music director for the Rosie O'Donnell show. Uh, at oh, the nice. Time. And uh, that was like my first real opportunity um, at, at doing something on a larger scale. Like he called me to uh, play his first two albums. And um, or not his first two albums, but to play two albums, and they just happened to be back to back. Like it was in one week, uh, we did two two days in the studio for one album, had a day off, and then two days in the studio for the next album. And uh, the first album had Greg Gosby, Kevin Hayes, uh, this bass player Kenny Davis. Um, he was Rodney Jones, and uh, he was producing it with uh, Carl Allen. And so they would, you know, running this label called Music Masters. And I was like, oh, man. And I just had remembered Carl Allen from some early recordings with Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison. And, mm-hmm. and so I was like, oh, man, you know, again, I was like, oh, I've made it. And that was like the most money. I didn't. Well, first, I didn't realize you could make money playing music. And then second of all, um, that was when I realized that you can make that amount of money right. playing music. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. And um, and to make that twice in one week, you know, it just blew my mind. I didn't even know what to do with it. And that's when I was like, I guess I need a bank account and I need to I, I figure this out a little bit. <laughs> exactly. So it was, you know, it was great. And that was my introduction. And and then everything else happened. You know, uh, how do you say it? it just it, everything else just kind of lined up after that, like doing the, the album with Rodney Jones introduced me to Greg Osby. Greg Osby became uh, the first touring band that I toured with. And that was in 1996 uh, when we went to Europe. And then, um, you know, through Greg Osby, I met, you know, this great tenor player named Mark Shim. 
because uh, you know Mark Shim and Greg Osby and like Steve Coleman all were you know like one kind of sax family you know mm-hmm. they were really doing the in bass thing and also because of Greg Osby I met Steve Coleman and I got a chance to play with Steve Coleman and so that was all one thing but Mark Shim then introduced me to Betty Carter and that's how I ended up getting the gig with Betty Carter uh, you know she welcomed me to her Jazz Ahead program and then we got to know each other and play and and then, so by the time 1997 came around, I was playing with Betty Carter, you know, 1997, 1998. And then in 1998, because, you know, I was playing with Betty Carter, you know, I met uh, Aaron Goldberg and, and Ruben Rogers. And, you know, we had started playing and I met other guys in the city because I was playing in the city. And because I knew Aaron and Ruben, uh, I ended up meeting Joshua Redman because Aaron and Joshua Redman were good friends in Boston. And so I got called to do the first um, quartet after the Blade Brad Meldow quartet with Josh, but I couldn't make it because I was still with uh, uh, Betty Carter. And I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to quit the band. I was like, this is Betty Carter, this is a legend, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stay with this. And so, you know, Josh was like, man, totally understand. You know, hope we get to play together again in the future. And I was like, man, I really hope so. I'm a huge fan, blah, blah, blah. And then again, Mark Shim looked out for me again. Uh, had told, had mentioned my name to Terrence Blanchard, and uh, and then I get the call from Terrence Blanchard. He's like, "Man, you know, uh, Mark Shim plays, you know, some recorders, but you on it. I really like the way you sound. Uh, we, you know, I'm looking to change the band. Do you want to join the band?" I was like, <laughs> "I was like, man, <laughs> yes, you know." And so it just it worked out where you know, you know, Terrence. It was just the right timing because then. I didn't. I couldn't join Terrence's band at the moment because it was the same deal with Betty, but timing was perfect because Terrence didn't want me to join the band immediately, and then and then you know I mean unfortunately like Betty took ill at that time and mm-hmm. uh, that's when she got diagnosed with, with cancer and so then I really kind of freaked out because I was like oh man you know I'm not gonna have a gig, but you know Terrence was willing to wait and he was like oh man it's cool you know you know I'd love to welcome you to the band and all this kind of stuff so everything. You know, just kind of got handed off, you know, like one by one. And I mean, the whole, the rest of the career is just the exact same way. Like through Terrence, I met Dave Holland because one of the first albums I did with Terrence was Wondering Moon. And, you know, Dave Holland and Branford Marcellus, you know, were guest artists on that album. Right. And, uh, and so that's how I got to know Dave Holland. And, uh, and also through Betty, you know, we played an opening concert for uh, uh, McCoy Tyner. And that's how I met McCoy Tanner. That's how McCoy Tanner heard me because I was playing with Betty Carter. And so, you know, years after that, McCoy had called me to, to play with him. So, you know, you know, that's the way I've always known the jazz community to work is that people hear you if they like what you're doing, then you get the opportunity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know if it's still working the same way now, but um I feel I feel and felt very, very, very fortunate the way everything just kind of transpired, you know, that way, because it was in a, in a to a certain degree. I had no control over what was happening, which just everything was just happening. Right. And um, and I, you know, I just made sure that I could, you know, rise to the occasion in each you know situation, because, you know, those bands and those everybody that, that you know like McCoy tying a bed they were already established and to a certain degree they expected you to to already know their music sure which was something that 
you know, really, you know, threw me for a loop in the beginning. But you learn to catch on fast because they'll just start playing. They won't put no sheet music in front of you. You know, they just like beat one. And then you're like, oh, shit. So <laughs> Here we if go. You don't, <laughs> exactly. If you don't know the tune, you're learning it by the first course. And uh, and that was always a beautiful thing. Like for me, I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. And that's why I learned more tunes that I didn't know of, like McCoy China and Betty Carter and and um, Joe Henderson. I remember I got the call in the middle of the night to uh, to play with Joe Henderson. And that was because of uh, Stefan Harris. We went to school together. And um, and they were having some some problems on the road with the band and stuff. And so Joe wanted to switch it up. And Stefan had told Joe about me. And, you know, Joe was like, cool, you know, um, bite him out. You know, we'll fly him out, you know, tomorrow morning. And so I was asleep and I get a call at like 10 at night. You know, can you come to California tomorrow morning? And I was like, <laughs> OK, cool. <you> know? <laughs> and uh, and I went out there and it's you know, playing quartet with Joe Henderson. I was like, God damn. So, Things happen fast. Man, they just, yeah, they just get to rolling. It's funny. I'm, I'm actually doing a, a webinar tonight about how to get bigger and better gigs. And, you know, a lot of people can't figure out how to get gigs and, and how to connect with people and how to network with people. And the way that, that you described it is, you know, a lot of the ways that, that I describe it in this, in this webinar that I do, that it's, it's connecting it's connecting the dots between people because you get hired for who you know, what they know about you and your reputation and things like that. So, you know, how many people have you given a demo to, to, right. to get a gig? You know what exactly. I mean? Like how many people have you handed a resume to, to get a gig? Never. I've never done that either. Like yeah, every exactly. gig I've ever gotten is like, Oh, you're friends with this guy and, and this drummer broke his arm and they need somebody to join the tour tomorrow. You know, exactly. Oh, call Nick. He can do it. Call Eric. He can do it. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's uh, it. It's just, it's just interesting to me that, that literally I'm thinking about this thing that I'm doing tonight and you're like, you sort of just walk through the whole entire, the process of how all that works, which is amazing. <laughs> exactly. This podcast is 100% free thanks to the folks at DW. And it's not just DW. They have DW. They have Gretsch. They have LP. They have Cat. They have a bunch of different products under their umbrella now over the last year and a half or so. And I suggest checking all of them out because they make great products. They're great people over there at DW, the whole, the whole entire family from Don and Scott and everybody, everybody who's over there. So check them out at DWDrums.com. Now, you know, I always mention books on the podcast and I've mentioned Tim Ferriss's four hour work week and I've mentioned uh, Thinking Get Rich and a bunch of different books. Now, I read a lot, but I also listen a lot. So one of the services I use is audible.com that I love. My best friend actually works at Audible, too, which is kind of cool. But. Audible is my favorite because I can listen to audiobooks on the go. And as a podcast listener, you can get a free audiobook if you go to audible.com forward slash drummer. 100% free. You can download your first book. I suggest the four hour work week or think and grow rich. Audible.com forward slash drummer for your free audiobook. Another great supporter of the podcast is Evans, who reminds you to let no circle box you in. Evans Level 360 gives you the most consistent fit for your drums so you can get a greater tonal range, effortless tuning, and the freedom to express yourself any way you want. You can learn more about all the Evans drumheads at evansdrumheads.com. Now, let's get back into it with Eric Harland. 
we talked a little bit about about the business side of things, but I I wanted to ask you a specific question about that. That let's all right. The playing is a no brainer. You have to be a good player. There's no there's no ifs ands or buts about that. You can't be some half ass player. Um, but that aside. How important do you think it is that you learn all of this business stuff? I know I remember I put something on Instagram that was like, if you want to make a career in music, you need to work on your business as much as you work on your paradiddles. And so I'd like to hear your opinion about about the business side of things and how important you think that actually is. I think it's very important. Um, now, I don't I don't think that destroys anyone's opportunity as far as like getting a gig like, um, or getting a good situation. It just, it just dampers the actual, how long you keep the situation and how long, you know, like, uh, being business savvy, you know, gives you a sense of longevity. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily like, um, uh, give you the introduction. I think the introduction all has to do with, with talent, you know, who, you know, and, you know, you can, you can put the, who, you know, into a business thing, but if you do it that way, then it becomes a little bit fake. I think it's who you know authentically, you know, sure. like your friends, and, you know, because you have a, a um, you have a better rapport with them, and, and they know who you are, like, you know, as a person, as a human being, and they know your spirit. Uh, because you know, it's hard for me to get on board sometimes with the with the LA scene. Like every time you meet somebody, you gotta just give them your whole resume. It's just like you know, I'm more than just a resume. Like I'm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm more than just a drummer. Like, I love to play drums and, you know, and I would love to, to you know, sing all my praises to you. But, you know, I feel like life is a little bit more valuable than that. So in my case, I tend to trust that, you know, the right situation is going to work out or is going to find me without me having to to shop myself. Sure. And um, and so but. You know, because I, I know some guys think that that's a, like a business goal, like you got to shop yourself. And then some people really actually excel at it. So I can't say that it's not a good thing. It just I never feel like it was a good thing for me. I feel like I was always being somebody that I wasn't. And uh, mm-hmm. but uh, as far as like the business side, in the sense of you know being professional, uh, you know, you know, returning people's calls, returning people's emails. Even if you late, you know, the sincerity and that, you know, time is valuable. You don't want to waste their time. You know, little things like that just go a long ways. Um, you know, when you get to the gig, you know, knowing the material, if you don't, if you didn't have really a good enough time learning material, you know, really focusing and really trying to do your best to, you know, to be exemplary, you know, to, to do, you know, to be amazing. I hate to use the word amazing, but to be <laughs> to nail the material when you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things, I, I think, you know, are also associated with how you run your business because your business is being um, a state-of-the-art musician, is being a good musician. And so, you know, just like you want when you go to an establishment and you want them to treat you a certain way, you know, you like the product to be great, you know, I think it's important for every musician to look at themselves in that same manner mm-hmm. Be- because, you know, that's what you're doing. You're introducing a product and, um, and you can take that, you know, minute, you know, you can do that minimally or you can take it to this, to the max as much as you want to, like meaning, right. you know, if you want to come up with your own logo and brand and all this kind of stuff and, 
you know, if you want to get into production, you know, if you want to pretty much broaden your range of how much, you know, creativity that you to offer, you know, give it all, you know, but the business side is very important. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of guys that don't, you know, there's a lot of pro drummers that don't have websites. They don't have Facebook. I mean, like you can't, you can't find any information about them. And I think a lot of, you know, I think that's, it works for some guy. Like some guys just want to be off the radar. And I think, um, you know, honestly, like if I was, if I had got drafted by a particular band that was just, that became very popular so much that I didn't need any other band. I mean, who knows? Um, I might've been one of those guys as well, where I wouldn't have a Facebook or I wouldn't have Twitter or anything like that. Right. It's just I never got that opportunity. I never got the opportunity to play with like a like a stadium band. Mm-hmm. You know, to Yeah, like Chad it. Smith doesn't have a website. Yeah, I, you know yeah I, mean? I don't know if he ever needs one. I mean, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are just such a well-known and established and you know, killer band like, you know, that's his family and they make tons of money. You know, he's super famous. You know, I I think you know, for him he doesn't have to. He got an agent that take care of, you know, takes care of all that, and they mm-hmm. reach out to him, and and so he can kind of stay, you know, behind the scene and and chill, just like most celebrities do. Whereas I feel like, you know, a lot of us still, you know, yearn for that status, but at the same time, since we're not there, you know, we have to take the initial steps because we don't per se have like an agent. You right. know, that's, you know, that's always out there speaking on our behalf and, you know, getting us a part of like certain situations, you know, you have to, you know, <laughs> do what you can to, right. to to remain visible. Right. And, you know, how much would you say that you you yearn for that sort of thing to be like super famous or, you know, in one of those bands that's just playing at stadiums and man, I yeah. Of course, because I haven't done it. You know what I mean? Like right. just, uh, yeah, I just just the opportunity to see what that feels like. I would love to just, you know, be with that type of band. You know, I don't know how long I would want to do it for. It just depends. Uh, mm-hmm. What it a- just it just seems like it would be fun if you know, depending on the band too. Though, like you know, if it's a band that's already been established, and you know, you got to come in there and you know, and just kind of be like a slave to the whole. Thing, then I don't. I don't think I'm on board with that. Right, sort I of do. strips your identity and just puts yeah, you in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, nah, no. Nah. I, I do appreciate the freedom that being a jazz drummer has given me, and you know, I'm constantly surprised that people enjoy what I do because I feel like I'm really just expressing myself. And I was like, if it, you know, if it makes sense and people love it, I'm like, great, you know, because you know, for me, playing the drums is. Is, is you know it's emotional and it's, it's personal mm-hmm. and um so i'm glad people enjoy seeing me being personal on stage because that's really what's happening yeah it's and it's rare to to be able to really express yourself and be able to get paid to do it yeah because you, know? you know like i've been called for a lot of different you know situations and and that's where the professionalism comes in is you know, they need this beat to be this way at this BPM. And, you know, if you're professional and you're, you know, well-practiced, you can do that. You can be like, oh, cool, I can give you that. And, you know, because sometimes, and they might not want any personality in it. It's like, I need this to sound just like this. I'm like, okay, I give it to you just like that. Right. 
it's not gratifying at all. The only gratification about that is that check. But, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, but then you have your other situations where you can go and you can be yourself and you can play. And luckily for me, it's most of the gigs I have is all about me being able to be myself and being able to play and, and just be free and be liberated in that sense. So, you know, I feel very, very fortunate um, about that. Sure. But yeah, I would love for that to to transpire to an even more popular band because I get frustrated with the, um, you know, kind of like the, the jazz industry. Uh, just, you know, the clubs and a lot of the venues that you play, it's like, you know, everybody's just kind of, you know, crying about the finances and about, you know, you know the money is drying up and, you know, and, and so they, they, it's almost like they're trying to continually get you to come out there for less and less and less. And uh, and for me, I just it frustrates me because I feel like in no other you know industry would that even be tolerated. Right. It's like you know this person is going to come, they're going to sell tickets. Why are you trying to still get them for less money? And you know, and it's just like there's always this confusion between well, you know, okay, if you're selling the tickets at this price and you're making this amount of money while the artists only making this amount of money. So it's just, there's this weird dynamic that's going on where all the finances and stuff that has to do with, you know, in the jazz market just aren't clear. And so, and then you got, you know, you know, the clubs are trying to really establish themselves. So, you know, they're not afraid to bring in a younger artist that would take half the money than to bring in a more established act, you know, because it saves them money. And if the club will be full, you know, it's a win-win situation for them. And you're like, that's cool. You know, I can't knock, you know, I can't knock, you know, um, the game, you know, someone trying to, you know, to benefit themselves. I just hate that that happens. And maybe it happens in, in rock and in, you know, R&B and, and other genres as well. But because I'm inside of the jazz market, I see it. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of times, you know, I get to be beyond it just because I play with a lot of the greats and a lot of people know my name. But still, I just don't like the makeup of it. I, f I feel like there has to be a better way for this thing to work out. And um, I just don't I just don't know yet. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. <laughs> I'm working on that. So are you are you maybe considering looking into getting into other markets too well that's what i've been doing that's that's why i have you know the thing with the loop loss and you know mm -hmm. so, you know to get into the internet market and, sure, sure you know the dvd market because i didn't want to do anything with hudson music because even them i found like they were taking like 80 20 like you know they, sure. had, they were taking 80 percent, and then the artists were getting 20 percent. you know maybe more known artists were getting more but I was like, man, you know, the Internet game really changed everything. Like if you have any notoriety, um, you know, you, you know, it's a direct to consumer. So, you know, people can come and get your product directly from you or you can team up with someone and do like a 50 50 thing and and, you know, and start your own alliance. And I think that's the thing now. And it, it works great. Mm -hmm. uh, OK, you may not get the same distribution, but you will get some distribution and the payoff, you know, financially and notoriety say, I think it's also a win-win situation. Yeah. Because, you know, it's all a market. I'm with you, uh, man. And also, um, you know, other things like I'm just not afraid of 
any kind of business venture, I feel like, you know, if you're creative, you always have something creative to offer to anything. So that's why I always say, too, that I'm more than just a drummer. I just always seek to remain creative in any outlet. And uh, and unfortunately, like I've been asked to be, uh, you know, artists in residence at certain festivals. And and like now I'm one of the uh, residential artistic directors at the SF Jazz Center. And so I believe all those opportunities come from just being creative and people, you know, seeing what ideas you can put together, which is something more than just being a drummer. It's about, you know, how can, because, you know, it was always a big, you know, fantasy of mine to, to bring the Bay together, you know, like, cause there was always been this difference between San Francisco and Oakland. But with me, when I was growing up, I always felt like they were one entity because, you know, it was a lot of liberation and movements and, you know, um, uh, I not, I mean, riots, of course, but, you know, just marches, you know, you know, for freedom and, you know, for, for, for you know, for love and for peace, you know, all these things I associated mm-hmm. with like Northern California. And so it was, it was almost kind of breaking my heart to see the divide, like Oakland became more like just the black community and, and San Francisco was more the white community. And, and I was like, well, it's all for me, it's just all one community. So like one of my last, residential programs at the SF Jazz Center, like I took that opportunity to do a, a, a series called uh, the, the, the Revolution of Rhythm and tying in the whole thing with Gil Scott Heron, like the, the movement that he had that was out there that really brought everyone together. Uh, the same, you know, the music of Fela Kuti and, and then, uh, you know, jazz and poetry, like, you know, uh, it was just such a, a beautiful time that I remember in the Bay Area because you had, you know, conscious lyrics associated with just beats and and then how the people would just come together in the community. And and it, it, was, it was a beautiful thing because the SF Jackson is in San Francisco and it was always it seemed like it was pulling teeth to try to get people from Oakland to come to San Francisco. But they came out, man, and they, they loved it. And you could see how. You could look in the audience and you could see all the people being together and enjoying the same thing because they they might experience it from, you know, different eyes, but the heart was still the same. And I mean, that just brought me so much joy to witness that. So did you spend a lot of time in that area or just from the just from doing the jazz festivals there? No, I man, it, it was just one of those things like uh, McCoy Tyner used to do. Um, and could you seem con- really connected to it? That's why I asked. Yeah, yeah, man, it was, it was, I hate to use the word strange or coincidence, but it was, um, it was just one of those things where I started playing at Yoshi's with McCoy Tainer like every January. Mm-hmm. And this started kind of like in 2002, 2000, yeah, 2002. And, um, and that's where it started. Like, um, you know, people heard me play on McCoy and so that kind of built my audience then, but they had also seen me play with Betty Carter, they had also seen me play with Joe Henderson. And so that was kind of the establishment of it. And then when I started playing with Charles Lloyd and Zachary Hussein, that was like even more so because, you know, they're, you know, Zachary lives in the Bay Area. Charles is, you know, he's very well known in California. And so in a way I was playing with all of these people that, you know, had such a strong alliance with California. And then I got asked to join the SF Jazz Collective, which was, you know, at that, you know, it was the, you know, the jazz ensemble of San Francisco. And so that helped, 
you know, build just, I think, notoriety and my name out there as, as well as playing like the Monterey Jazz Festival a bunch of times. And and it was just like that slow build and just over years. And, you know, after doing that for, I mean, what now has been 14 years, you know, it is, you know, a community. It's like I grew up there the same way with New York. Like I, I feel like I've grown up in, in the Bay Area for 14 years. Uh, I've been an East Coaster since 1994 so or maybe even like 93 so oh man i mean how many years is that i can't even lose count. <laughs> you're uh, talking i'm no mathematician 20, 20, <laughs> <I ain't> no, <laughs> i'm a drummer i'm not a mathematician don't put me on the spot <laughs> right. here i was like uh sick uh oh, carry man, the one but yeah but yeah it, 20 20 20 20 plus years or so right <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah, you know, you know 20 plus and, years. To, to, I think 20... Uh, why am I drawing a blank on this? Well, I'm trying to think, okay. If I go from 93... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, 23 years. Yeah, 93 to 16 would be 23, yeah. Yeah, 23 years. Well, then that makes that makes total so, sense. Yeah, so, you know. You spend enough time and, and I don't, it's just like some places you feel connected to, man. I, I, I get it. You know, like some places yeah. you do, some places you don't. So, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, I haven't been in the Midwest much. <laughs> right. But, you know, <laughs> hey, maybe, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? You may spend 20 odd years there too. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next topic. All right. No, actually, I do want to. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to. I want to talk about your record, um, Vipassana. Is that how you pronounce it, Vipassana? Hey, you. I think the. Hello. Hey you there. Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The line got weird or something. There for a oh, second. okay. Um. So I want to talk about your record, Vipassana. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, It's actually called Vipassana. Vipassana. I know it's a type of meditation. I've actually looked at going to uh, Vipassana resorts in Colorado, which is kind of crazy. But um, so talk to me a little bit about the record and and the backstory behind it. Well, it's, it's, I mean, the kind of same thing for me. So, you know. After music school, I went to theology school because, you know, my mom wasn't just um, a musician, but, you know, she was also uh, an evangelist. So, you know, I grew up in a very religious family as well. Well, I would say religious, one-sided religious. Like, my mom was super Christian. My dad was just kind of open. Like, you know, he didn't really practice any particular religion. He was just like, you know, his whole thing is just, you know, just be a good person. (laughs) Right. Keep it simple. Uh, but my mom was like devout, you know, devout Christian. And, um, and so, you know, she really, that was, that was her mission was to instill, instill in us so much, you know, so much of the Bible, so much of, you know, Christianity and, you know, the rules and regulations and what everything was about. And she always kept us in church and stuff. And, uh, and so to a certain point, you know, it just became a little too too heavy for me because I felt like I didn't have the freedom to live, you know, to make the decisions that I wanted to without always feeling like, you know, I was being condemned to a certain, you know, because I didn't feel condemnation within myself 
it was just, you know, my mom was like, oh, that's not right now, it's a garden, all this kind of stuff. And so eventually I, I said, in order for me to really feel comfortable about whatever decision I'm going to make, I'm going to have to just take some time and go and learn about this for myself. Right. Make my and own so decisions. And just make my own decisions. And so that's what I did. I went to theology school and, you know, just kind of studied about the Bible. And then then I became Christian. I was like, oh, okay, you know, I understand, you know, uh, the love for Jesus and, you know, accepting him in your heart and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, man, it's such a beautiful story. I can get on board with that. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, yeah, you know, it's like, well, now that you say it like that, it sounds a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Right. What's not to like, but then, you know, I, you know, evolution, you know, I just, I couldn't stop. Like it just didn't stop there. You know, it was just like different ideas really came into, to focus for me. Like, cause it was like, I would go to church and I, w- I was preaching, but then I also heard other ministers preach. And the one thing that always kind of stood out, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, you always have to accept Jesus as your personal savior to be saved. And I was kind of like, first I was like, that's cool. But then I was like, well, man, why? Okay, why you got to accept him? Like, if he already died for your sins, wouldn't that just kind of be automatic? Isn't that just like, that just kind of goes <laughs> up? You know, it's like, you just, everybody's cool now. He's just like, you know, he did it. You know, so it's cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, you don't have to keep going, you know, and, cash and checks in the bank, you know, that, you know, and so I was like, so that, that kind of started to mess with my belief in that direction. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I, I then began to, you know, evolve into like, you know what, no, man, God, it just, just has this love for everybody. And no matter who you are, you know, you just under this umbrella of just of hope and, like you, you're pretty much just in heaven, basically. Like I know we call it Earth, but Earth has to be a form of heaven that we exist. I mean, you try to think about, you know, how we got here. You know, all that, all those are miracles. You know, the birth, mm-hmm. and, you know, life, and you know, and energy and spirit. Like you know, it was like all these things just started blowing my mind. And also because I was you know, reading more and traveling more, getting to know you know different people and just seeing different aspects of life that just changed my view. You know, my view became less, you know, tunnel and more widespread. Um, I'm trying to condense it because it's a long story. No, so I, then I, 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 started, I asked. <laughs> right. So then I started uh, just checking out, you know, various religions and, you know, they were all too, you know, equally complex for me to get into, but you could kind of get the gist of it. And I was, so I just, at the end, I was like, oh, it's just all about, you know, you know, culture, what you grew up with. If this makes sense to you, then it'll lead you to, you know, the holistic place that you're trying to get to no matter what. Because, you know, love is in everything. You know, whether you believe in Jesus, whether you believe in Buddha, whether you believe in, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Hinduism or, you know, Gandhi or Taoism. I mean, wherever you you know, spirituality, spirituality takes you, there is divinity there because it's all divine. And so now that I, I, I see that, I don't have to practice anything. But, you know, uh, Vipassana was one of those things that I like because it's not a religion. It's just a meditative practice. And it's a meditative practice that how not to always make the same responses. Uh, because a lot of times, a lot of our habitual you know a lot of our responses are habitual and um, mm. because we're creatures of habit and what that meditation is about 
is when something transpires or something happens, you don't always have to make the same, you know, response that you've always made in the past. You can, you can breathe for one and deeply internalize the, the moment that's happening and choose differently. Hmm. And I was like, man, that's, that's great. And so I tried it and it really does work. You just, you know, it has to you take conscious effort in the beginning because, you know, you're just not used to it. You just kind of, you know, if someone comes and, and pokes you on the shoulder, you just naturally look around because maybe you always, you grew up where you always thought there was going to be danger or, you know, if someone breaks your heart, you get emotional and you cry because that was always, you know, the way you saw somebody else experience that or the way you see somebody else experience pain. But a lot of times we don't just look at what happened, like look at, okay, well, what is pain or what is this tap on my shoulder or this person left my life? Did they really leave your life? You know, like what really has happened? And it really just changes everything. It really does. You know, if you mm-hmm. allow it to, sure, know, it's just a, a different, a different way to look at it. It's like music, it's a different way to hear the song, right? You know, the song doesn't have to change. You know, your perception of the song changes, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. I I like it. Yeah, I, I do. So, yeah. speaking of, this is a, actually a great segue. Um, so do you have any um uh, you talked about being creatures of habit and I'm fascinated by habit and habit formation and daily habits daily rituals that kind of thing. So do you uh-huh. have uh, and I I meditate every day that's why I'm I'm sort of tying all this together. Uh so do you have any sort of daily practices that you do whether it be meditating whether it be like running whether it be practicing whether, do you have anything that you that you try to do every day? Man, I'm like the opposite because I know I'm habitual by nature. I'm always changing my habits. Hmm, that's interesting. Be- yeah, which because- is maybe a habit in in itself, right? And maybe a habit within itself, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, if I do the same thing too long, I just, you know, I get, I don't know, I, I guess I could say I get bored. But um, I don't know, I just, I desire change. But I also desire things to be the same for a long period of time, too. Because I really want to, milk it for everything that it has like um like when i was running you know i was obsessively running all the time and then i stopped <laughs> and everybody was like man you don't run anymore i was like yeah i just got tired of running you know, <laughs> yeah i don't i don't do that anymore <laughs> yeah i got tired of running and then it was like you know i, I took a year and i was like i would be vegetarian I, I did that for a year you know, that was probably the shortest time I spent with anything. The thing I'm doing now is like no gluten, no, um, uh, no, uh, I can't, well, yeah, no starch. So I don't eat any potatoes, no rice, no bread, no flour. And, uh, it's going on two and a half years, but that started wow. two and a half years ago. Like it was just January 1st. I was in Paris. I woke up and I said, I'm not going to eat any starch. <laughs> How much weight like, did you lose from that? Well, it, you know, it wasn't so much. I mean, I lost some weight, so I, you know, not a lot, maybe like 10, 15 pounds. But right. uh, what I mostly lost was just like a lot of body fat. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like the, it just, you know, the body started to just kind of tighten up a little bit, but not a whole lot because, 
you know, I, I boosted my protein intake. So, it, you know, I still remain, you know, like solid and heavy because, you know, the drums, but, you know, I don't have to eat as much and I get full faster. You know, my digestive you know system feels better. Like it's just, but I don't know why I did it. It was just a decision to do it was just one of those things. I was like, you know what? I just, I don't really need starch. Like you, just, you sound like me in a sort of way where I, I sort of like the challenge to do things. So I'll be like, I'm going to try, I'm going to not drink for a month or two or whatever it is. Exactly. exactly. I don't always do it. Right. (laughs) But I start to, uh, I think about it. I mean, for, you know, for a couple months last year, I had, you know, I did like no gluten just to do it. I don't know why. Like I get this weird bug in my system that I'm like, ah, I want to try to challenge myself to do something every day or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, not drink for a year. I don't know. I'd never do that. But, uh, Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. I know myself, but exactly. uh, but like, but the small challenges, I think, to me, I don't know if that's the same reason you do it, but I get like this weird thing in the back of my head that I'm like, I can do this because most people can't, so I think I can do it. Well, yeah, it's something you know. I'm up, you know. I don't know. You hear these great stories about you know, like you know, Gandhi fasting for a long period of time, Jesus and stuff like that. You know, I feel like it's a sense of it's a sort of kind of like Messiah complex where, you know. If they could do these, you know, kind of extreme things, because I don't want to be super extreme, but I challenge myself in a in a healthy way. You know, I, sure. I think it comes with being a drummer, too. Like we're always challenging ourselves, you know, with the rudiments and, you know, with practicing practice routines and all this kind of stuff. Because I remember when I was uh, when I first became Christian, like I went celibate like uh, for like two and a half years. And it was like, the same thing, like, you know, just like no drinking and no sex you know, no masturbation. It was like nothing. Like I wanted the pure experience of seeing what this was. And that was like, you know, man, that was prime fucking time too. You know, I was like 19, <laughs> and 20, 21 and shit. I was like, man, I, I need to be getting so But, you know, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this right, I need to do this right and really get the gist of what it was. And I think that really helped my, um, you know, it helped me feel better about, you know, sex and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Cause I was like, man, you know, the way my, well, and all that stuff is escapism. Exactly. You know, whether, you know, in one way, shape or another, it's, it's escapism and drawing. If you're reliant on that for happiness or pleasure or whatever it's, it be, exactly. you know, it's one thing if it's in addition to, but if you're relying on that, then yeah, it's a form of escapism. Yeah. Like, you know, you hear guru say, it's like, you don't, you know, a master doesn't put something aside. Um, a master doesn't stop doing something. You know, a master essentially sets aside things that he no longer has use for. Right. So that's the difference. It's like, that's almost like the cat got so much stuff, you know, <laughs> right. that he just, he said, oh, I'm good. You know, it's just like, I, you know, I don't have to do that no more. I already mm-hmm. know where that's going to end up. And I'm cool. I think it's like living that's, in abundance where it's like, I don't... <laughs> Thank you. Living in abundance. Exactly. You know, it's like I have all of this, all of these abundant things around me and, and maybe I don't need other things. I'm not advocating that anybody doesn't have sex or drink alcohol or whatever. I'm just saying that, that I think, I think what it all comes down to, and we're getting deep here on the podcast today. So I hope everybody's (laughs) enjoying it. Uh, but this is like, I I love this kind of stuff. So that's why I'm really into it. And, uh, but, but I think that, uh, 
you know, being what it comes down to is just like being happy with what you have and not having to go out and get other things or find other things or smoke things or drink things or, you know, have sex with people to to get happiness. Yeah, I think it's just like be happy with what you have and and find happiness in what you have. And then you can do other things to sort of maybe just enhance that or enjoy those on the side. Yeah, happiness is a state of being, you know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. not something you, you don't seek to be happy. You just, you be happy and then things come to you. You know, it's, it's the, it's energy, you know, like energy attracts like energy. And it's just, you know, gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. You know, you're your own, you know, you know, gravitational, you, you're your own orbit, basically. You know? Right. And I, you know, I like that. I like that. I love that. That's it's it's beautiful. Me too. Law of attraction, man. Yeah, man. Law of attraction. So, so I think I think it's all good stuff, man. So if people want to to reach out to you and connect with you and and check watch you playing or 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 uh, do you teach lessons? You know, <laughs> that that's that's becoming a question because I used to. Okay. But I've been kind of avoiding them lately. Um, and that's because I'm just, I'm not sure um, the benefit of lessons. I'm just not sure. And I know other people have figured it out for themselves. But, you know, I value, you know, a person's, you know, time and mind and creative process more than just making some money. And because mm-hmm. before it was like, oh, yeah, I'll share my ideas and, you know, you're going to pay me, you know, my fee, you know, just they being here for an hour. And I just for me, I just didn't feel like it one an hour was long enough to really help this person get to where I felt like they were trying to get to. So I was like, well, if I can't do it in an hour, then I hate to like add more confusion to like a process that they're already on, you know, because they're going to get. You're going to get to it if you want it and you're hungry for it. You're going to get to it. You don't nef- definitely need a lesson. A lesson might help to like maybe define certain things, like certain questions or whatever. But it, today you can send, you know, most drummers that you love, you can send them an email or a Facebook message or something. And they might get back to you and, and just kind of let you know their creative process or whatever they do to handle that situation. I know I do that. But as far as like really taking the time and sitting down with someone and giving a lesson, I just, I, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of at odds with that now because it just seems like I'm just taking somebody's money and I'm, I don't feel like I'm really benefiting them the way I would like to benefit them. So I'd rather not take their money. I'd rather them come to a show. We can talk after a show or, if, you know, if I know them well enough, we can hang and get coffee and talk or something like that. But the actual process, you know, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's why I've been kind of avoiding master classes to a certain degree too, a little bit. Just, I just don't know. You know, you know, it's great, but I feel like the music is deserves more than just, you know, I don't know. But maybe you know, maybe I'm just in a different headspace, and I, I can I can be cool with that. <laughs> but I, but you know what? It's your. Uh, I I think it's your your space to do that so it's it's your either your knowledge or your skill or your gift or your talent or whatever it is and whether you choose to give it away for free or charge people a billion dollars for it or whatever you know it's yours to do whatever you want with it exactly yeah and i just i'm i'm for once not clear on the next step with that right (laughs) exactly 
Well, for everyone listening, I do suggest that you go check out Eric. He's doing a uh, a bunch of shows all over the place. I'm just looking at your tour dates. You'll actually you're actually playing in Italy in October. I'll be in Italy in October. Nice. Yeah. So I might have to make the trip. You're going to be in northern Italy. So I have a house uh, directly east of Rome, three hours east of Rome. So. Oh man. Um, that. That's nice. Yeah, so it's not a bad because you're going to be up north of Venice, and we're going to be heading to Venice. So maybe I can make that work. Maybe we'll come see you in in Italy. That'd be hip. Oh man, please uh, be fun. Um. So, but anybody else, check them out. Be sure to to go watch Eric play live. Uh, you will learn a lot just by doing that. I'm sure. Pick up the uh pick up the record Vipassana, and you can go to ericharlan.com for all of his information. And Eric, man, I want to thank you for being a part of this podcast i really appreciate it it's been great having you i've been i've been wanting to get you on for a while so it was, it was great to chat with you man thank you man you know thank i really appreciate the opportunity every opportunity is a great one and you know please excuse all the delays and, and everything it's just no need to apologize man you're, <laughs> you're a busy man so i i understand it and i appreciate you taking the time to chat because i know you are busy Oh, man. You too, man. I really appreciate it, man. Thank definitely. you. Definitely. It was a great pleasure. And uh, anytime you want to come back, man, you're more than welcome. Oh, okay. I like to talk. All right. Good deal. Eric, thanks again, man. All right. Thank you. All right. So there you have it, Mr. Eric Harlan. For all the show notes for everything that we talked about, links to how you can connect with Eric and all the other things that are discussed in the podcast, and also a place where you can leave comments about the podcast, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 183. And if you're trying to figure out how to get bigger and better gigs, check out my free webinar this Tuesday. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs to sign up, and I'll teach you how to master the secret weapons for getting the gigs you want. That's drummersresource.com forward slash gigs. I hope you have an awesome week. I want you guys to kill it this week and go out there and do something amazing. And uh, yeah, just play some drums. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Peace.